Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church, and this is Sermons at High Peak. Well, I wonder how many of you have had Olympic fever. You know, it's this time every normally four years, this time, you know, after a fifth year, and uh, <clears throat> people all over the world gather to show their athletic prowess and people watch and cheer and get excited. There's always neat stories that come out of it. And uh, one of the things though that, that kind of jumped out at me, we were watching and, and suddenly a sport came on that I didn't even know was a thing. You know, Barb likes to watch the swimming. She used to be a swimmer. And one day they showed marathon swimming I'd never heard of marathon swimming. I've heard of marathon running. I've heard the triathlon, which, you know, they swim for a long time, but this is marathon. They go for for 10,000 meters, they swim. Now, I I struggle to swim for 10 meters. I mean, I'm just not a very good swimmer, so I couldn't imagine what that must be like. But can you imagine the endurance that's needed to swim for 10,000 meters? That's a long time when you think about it. You know, there's all these athletes that have achieved great success in their athleticism. You know, Michael Phelps won a total of 28 medals when he was competing. He's no longer competing. And one of the great stories, I think, that came out of these Olympics is a young woman named Suni Lee, a Hmong young lady from St. Paul, Minnesota. There's a large Hmong population here, but there's also one there and in my hometown of Milwaukee, and they all kind of have a connection to each other. And uh, Suni Lee was not from a wealthy family. Her family couldn't afford a lot that the other girls could easily afford. The training, the coaching, um, the, the time in the gym and everything. And so in order to be able to train her family and also her community, and in, I believe including her church, they sold um, uh, egg rolls. How many of you have had the Hmong egg rolls? They're tasty, aren't they? I'm not a big egg roll fan, but I like those. Dip them in that sauce they always give you. That's some good stuff. How many of you are hungry and want me to shut up so we can go eat lunch, right? But it's inspiring to see the endurance, the effort that is put into these people. And some of these athletes, they're going to train and they are going to put forth hours and hours of sweat and difficulty. And they're just going to be happy to come in last place because they're not that great an athlete compared to the others in the field. They made it to the Olympics and they're excited. And when you think about that, how inspiring that is to endure patiently the effort and hard work that it takes to achieve even that level of what we might think of as failure, but it really is success. As Christians, that should inspire us when we think about what we must endure. You know, there's a lot uh, that we have to think about as believers that we have to endure. There's persecution for most of us in this country. It's minor, but it still exists. For others, it's deadly. But then there's also just the obedience, the temptation we face. Satan really wants to destroy you. He wants to take away your testimony. He wants to take away your joy. He wants you to be miserable and think you're having fun while you do it. And so you've got things like, you know, the, the Ten Commandments that we have to endure by being faithful to them. And then the disciple. Uh, the disciplines of the faith, being committed in our prayer and Bible study, uh, 
our worship, fellowshipping with other believers, when even that can sometimes be an endurance. If you've got just the right person who kind of rubs you the wrong way and you have to show them love and grace. Or maybe if you don't know of any Christians like that, you're probably the one who's like that to other people, right? It's an endurance that we have to face, and the Bible teaches it that way. Living a life of grace in the face of sin. Think about that phrase. Living a life of grace, being forgiving when others sin against you. That takes a lot of patient endurance. And that's what I want us to think about as we open up the book of James chapter 5 today. Open up James chapter 5 with me. <clears throat> you know, the previous passage to what we're going to look at in verse 7 uh, sort of like in Sunday school today, it talks about the wealthy being warned about their oppression of the poor. And for the Christians, most of the time, they were on the receiving end of that oppression. By contrast, James is now going to talk about how do you deal with that oppression. He starts by telling the wealthy how they ought to treat the poor, and now he will talk about how the poor ought to react when they are oppressed. Christians were not wealthy in that day. In his time, they faced much harsher persecution than we do in our culture, in our nation today. And really, the thing that is needed most is that patient endurance. So look at verse 7 with me. It says in James 5, 7, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, Therefore, brothers and sisters. By the way, in the original, it just says brothers. This translation likes to include it because the original intention of the author was all people. But they just, in their culture, said brothers. He says, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. In the language that the Bible was written, the Greek language, they show emphasis differently than we do in our English language. You know, in English, if you're saying something you want to emphasize, it, you might use a word like very. He's a very big guy. She's very tall. She's very beautiful. You know, we use that kind of terminology to show emphasis on that. In Greek, they place the words in different places in the sentence. You know, you and I, we have wording and it goes in a certain order and it always has to be kind of in that order a lot of the time. But for them, it's not that stringent. So in order to show emphasis when they're writing a sentence, they'll put the most important word sometimes at the beginning. Can you guess what the most important word is in this, word, in this uh, uh, sentence in verse 7? Patient. That's the most important word. That's the thing he wants to emphasize. And really it means patient endurance. It's more than just simple patience. It's being patient as you have to go through some stuff, as you have to go through difficulty in your life. You're not just waiting on life to happen. You are actively pursuing faithfulness as you patiently endure. You might be facing persecution by the wealthy in, in context. That's what he was talking about. And Christians often had to deal with that. When they became Christians and they uh, showed their testimony, other people didn't appreciate them and didn't like the Christians. Uh, and so they wouldn't give them business contracts. They wouldn't uh, enter into relationships with them economically. They wouldn't hire them in their jobs. Or maybe they'd even fire them after they converted to Christ. And so they faced a lot of economic persecution. 
And then if they were in a region where, you know, the, the, they were Jewish and then they became a Christian, you know, the Jews were accepted by the Roman Empire because they had been a religion before the Romans ever came in power. But the Roman Empire didn't like new religions. They didn't like religions at all that weren't worshiping their gods. And so they considered Christianity a new one. And so persecution started to come just because you were a Christian. Paul faced it. He was in prison. Many of the disciples faced it. Some were put to death like Paul and others were killed by the Roman Empire. And so they had to face this endurance. And he said, be patient as you wait, just like a farmer has to wait for the early and the late rains. Now, I, you know, I, I've told me many times, I'm not much of a, a gardener, definitely not a farmer, but when you study and understand what he's talking about here in, in their region, they would have early and late rains. And the early rains, we think of that as early rains coming in the springtime for us. For them, it was later in the year. They would, the early rains would be later in the year where they would uh, be ready to plant the crops. And then later on, rains would come to help them grow stronger so that they could now harvest the things. So imagine a farmer in that region. And he gets up early one morning and he's prepared his fields and he knows this is the day that he's actually going to plant. And there's been enough moisture in order to get the soil ready, but it's not been recently so that it's now able to be planted. So he plants it and he's looking there as the sun is coming up and he's thinking about the work of the day. He's thankful for the way God has prepared the land for him. And so he knows it's time and he begins the planting process. And over a period of time, however long it takes him, depending on the size of his fields, he, he gets it ready. And then he goes to praying, Lord, please bless my crops. And so the early rains come. And as a result, the seeds are able to germinate and they start to poke their way through the dirt and they eventually begin to grow. They're still fledgling. They're still weak. You know, they could be destroyed very easily. But enough rain has come and they've patiently waited for that rain. Because, you know, they didn't have great irrigation systems like we do. You know, you drive by the farms and you see these big long metal poles on wheels with water spraying out of them. And they didn't have things like that. They just kind of had to rely on the nature, the weather. And so they're thankful when they finally come. But then fast forward, I don't know, six weeks or, or so. And while the early rains came and got things ready, it's been a while. And they're beginning to be nervous. How are my crops going to do? They're not really able to grow as much. Uh, the sun has been too hot. There's been almost no rain whatsoever for several weeks. And they begin to fear and get worried. And, and as they sit there, they think about their future. If my crops don't come in, what am I going to do? How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to sell them in order to, uh, you know, buy the things I need? Like, you know, whatever. And, and how am I going to be able to store up enough for the winter time? And if none of that happens, they're destitute. They, they can live or die after one year. And then it happens. Finally, those late rains come just in the nick of time, just before the crops are dead to strengthen them and grow them to the point where they will be ready to harvest very soon. And so he says, like a patient farmer waits for first the early rains and then later the late rains, you too wait. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. Don't give up. It's easy to want to give up when it looks like things aren't happening, when there's not enough money coming in to pay the bills. 
uh, when it doesn't look like anything is changing in your child's relationship with the Lord, even though you brought them up in the church. Uh, they're not staying faithful. The Bible said if I bring them up in the Lord that, that when they're old, they won't depart from it. Well, I mean, I'm getting worried because of their lifestyle and what they're doing. They're destroying themselves. And when is this going to end? God, when are you, you going to kick in with your faithfulness? And he says, look, I'll kick in, but you just stay faithful. Patiently endure, and I will provide. I will be there for you. I will be there with you. Whether your crisis is emotional or spiritual, whether it's a financial issue or a health issue, whether it's the spiritual condition of your children or your spouse, your parents even, I will be there for you. I will be there by your side. Just be patient. Patiently endure. You see, the patient endurance is needed because he wants us to remain that way until Jesus comes. And so we need to patiently endure until the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Now in James' day, they believed something. They believed that Jesus might come at any moment and he might come very soon. In fact, they all believed it would be in their lifetime. Now I gotta be honest with you, the first maybe 30 to 35 years of my life, I, I kinda, kinda didn't expect it. I, you know, I, I just, I was like, is that really gonna happen in my lifetime? I don't know. Christians have been saying this for years. And I went to college and learned church history where, you know, these groups of Christians, they uh, went up into the hills of Tennessee because they believed they had the exact date of when it would happen. And it didn't happen. And after that date, so then they said, no, there's another date. It's gonna come a few more months later. And they kept setting dates. And finally, the people following this uh, teacher said, you know, I think maybe this guy might be a little bit of a crank. I'm not sure. But, you know, he keeps setting dates. We keep going up into the hills. It doesn't work out. Let's just go back home, start working again, start living our lives. And so they formed their whole denomination, you know, and, and they started a, a whole denomination over uh, what they believed and what they were taught. The fact is, we're supposed to endure. But you know, in my life right now, for the first time in the last several years, I believe more and more that it, it could come at any moment. And I'm being sincere and honest. I, I really believe Jesus is coming back, probably in my lifetime. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. That's all up to God. It's all on him. He gets to decide. He is the only one who knows the day or the hour. But I actually would be surprised if I live a full 70 years or 75 or 80 years of my life. I would be surprised if he doesn't return. And I know many of you I've talked to, you feel the same way. But whether you feel it or not, know that it's possible. But we have a responsibility to patiently wait and endure. To be there faithful for him. Have you ever waited for somebody somewhere? You were expecting them to show up. You know, maybe you got together with a friend or planned to, you know, over coffee or a lunchtime meeting. And so you go, you get there and you go inside the restaurant or the coffee shop and you get a table and, uh, you know, they'll bring the menus to you. Hey, I'll just wait. You know, my friend's going to be here in a little bit. Uh, just, just give me a drink. You know, you order a cup of coffee or a soda or some tea and you just sit there maybe with your phone or you got a book or Maybe you're just kind of looking around and you're waiting and you're looking at your watch. You're wondering where are they going to come? Are they going to make it? 
You know, sort of expecting, is there going to be a text message or a phone call? I can't make it today. Finally, you just realize, they must have just forgot. I guess I'll get up and walk out. So you're supposed to meet at 11.30 and it's 11.45. Time to go. I got stuff to do. So you get up, you get in your car and you drive away. And just as you drive away, they're pulling in all upset and frazzled and worried because they forgot. You ever done something like that? Later on, you found out they showed up right after you left. That's happened to me. Well, I want you to know that I'm afraid that for a lot of people in this world, something like that very well may happen in their relationship with God. And I believe that when you get saved, you are saved. That God holds on to you and he's never letting go. But just imagine this as a Christian. You've lived a faithful life and you've been patiently enduring. And then as you go through the struggles, the temptation gets stronger and stronger, harder to resist, and you finally give into it and lose your fellowship with the Lord. It's like you got up from the table and walked away because he didn't come when you wanted him to come, even if he comes exactly when he planned to come. Can you imagine what that would be like if Jesus, on the day he returned, you were living a very unfaithful, unchristlike lifestyle? How shockingly embarrassing that would be. How disappointing to yourself that would be, not alone let alone to him. In verse 8, James says, You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. The Lord's coming is near. That word near is near as in it's approaching. It's coming closer every single day. Sometimes I jokingly say, you know, it's later than it's ever been. <laughs> Guess what? That's always true. It's always later than it's ever been. So I'm not really saying anything that shocking. But you know what else is always true? Jesus' second coming is always closer than it's ever been. If you believe he's coming back, and I do. And it may be very soon. And so what he said, it's near. So you think about it. You know, James said this. He wrote this some nearly 2,000 years ago. Was it really near back then? Yes, it was near because the word he used means it's fast approaching. It is coming. Now, in his mind and in the first century Christians, many of them had this belief, you know what, we shouldn't even go on living our life. Essentially, they sort of went up into the hills to wait for the Lord. Not literally, but many of them had that kind of mentality. He's coming back and he's going to be here in weeks or months. The first Christians, after Jesus went to heaven, they kind of thought it's coming at the end of the by the end of the year, maybe even by the end of this Passover or this Pentecost season. He's coming back this summer. Sort of like the people in Europe when World War I started. You know, it started in the late summer, I think it was, or sometime in that time, spring to summertime. And they said, all our boys will be home by Christmas. And they all believed it. Two years later, it wasn't over yet. The thing is, it's near, and we need to live as if it's at hand. It could be coming at any moment. And in the New Testament, in Matthew, Jesus says uh, that it, he can come like a thief in the night. That means he may come when you don't expect it. How many of you expect a thief to come to your house tonight? Now, some of you might be prepared. You've got a good lock system, got some cameras, got a shotgun by the door, <laughs> a nine millimeter in the drawer. You're ready. But others of us maybe aren't ready at all. 
We leave the door wide open as if we're advertising. We've got silver. Come and get it. Free for the taking while we're asleep. And that's the way many of us are. We live our lives as if we are just open and ready for Satan to come and take away our joy and our faithfulness. And so we're ready to give in to temptations. And as we give in to those temptations, we lose the blessedness of, of being in a relationship with God. We lose the, the blessings of being in a close relationship with him. The abundant life Jesus promised in John 10, 10 is gone because we are not faithful. You lose your connection with Christ. And so you go through life and things just aren't working out. It seems like every single day gets harder and harder. And that's because God doesn't bless a sinful lifestyle. You might say, why is it so difficult all the time? Nothing seems to work out for me. And that's because God has taken his hand of blessing off of you because he can't bless a sinful lifestyle. If he does, you'll remain in sin and you'll ruin it for everyone around you and yourself. But that close relationship with God helps strengthen it. Do all that you can to avoid the, the temptation in the first place. But when you find yourself facing those temptations, flee those youthful lusts and run away. As Paul told young Timothy, he said, run away from it quickly and pursue the good that God has in your life with other people who want to help you grow in your faith. So look at verse 9. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Earlier in the previous verse where he says it's near, now he says the judge stands at the door. You know what all of us are going to face one day? A day of judgment. Where we stand before God and have to answer for our lifetime. And what did you do? with the knowledge that Jesus died for you and rose again and he's alive today. What did you do with that simple fact? Number one, did you believe it? Did you accept the gift of grace by asking forgiveness for your sins? Did you then repent of your sins and promise to live your life for him? Did you then serve him by being a witness and make disciples of other people and help them enter into that relationship with him? What did you do with this information? You're going to have to ask, answer for that. Now, if you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, we have confidence as we stand before him. Lord Jesus, I accepted you. I don't deserve to even stand here, but you forgave me. And you promised me that when I do stand before you, you'll say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. But you might not have that confidence right now. But know that you can if you'll just simply humble yourselves and admit that you're a sinner and believe that he died for your sin. You know, someone had to pay the price. Someone had to be punished. It cannot go unpunished. Sin is so bad, so serious that God can't let it go. Even though he, he uh, uh, pardons us, it still has to be punished. And so by his nature of his excellent goodness and his perfection, he said it has to be punished. And Jesus said, I'll take it. And he took the punishment for my sin and your sin. And he died. They put him in a grave. And he took that sin to the grave. And then he rose again to show that he is God. And he destroyed and conquered sin that day. All you have to do now is believe it and accept it and promise to live it. You don't even have to be perfect as you live it. You just got to try. And part of that is doing so with other believers. 
So he says, you know, don't complain about one another. See, this is just one of the simple applications of how to live a Christ-like lifestyle as we patiently endure. There's one great temptation that you and I face, and that is to tear each other apart. I don't know why we like to beat each other up in the church. We like to hurt each other. And I'm guilty. I've done it. But he says, don't complain about it. What does that mean to complain? It's the idea of judgment, adding judgment, bringing a case against them, saying all the terrible things that they have done. When do you find yourself complaining about fellow church members? I'd say one of them is when they fail to measure up to your expectations. When I find people are, you know, I had an expectation that they'd behave a certain way and then they didn't behave the way I wanted, I start complaining. Oh, you can't believe the way these people, you know, and you go on and on. You do it about your family. (laughs) You do it about your friends, people at work. But this verse is talking about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's when they've hurt you. I dare say you've been hurt by a church member before. Because when you love someone, you open yourself up to that. You become vulnerable to their, their pain. And they hurt you. I promise I've been hurt and I have hurt other Christians. And if you have experienced the hurt because of my actions, just know I I love you and I'm sorry. And I'd be very happy for you to come and tell me about it so that I can apologize to you directly. Another time is when we fail them. That's that part of that hurting them. But sometimes it's because I'm feeling guilty and so I project that guilt onto other people. I'm feeling guilty, but I don't like feeling guilty, and misery loves company, so I'm going to tear you down and bring you down with me. You know, I think, thinking about sports, you know, they say baseball is the favorite pastime. That's not true. That ain't true at all. Gossip is America's favorite pastime. We love to gossip. Back in 2011, the New York Times had an article about a little town called Mountain Grove, Missouri. Population 5,000 about, give or take. It was a small, tightly knit community. And for years, they had a local place that everyone would gather. This local place was called Dee's Place. It was a little diner. They'd all gather at, di- at Dee's Place. In the mornings, you'd often see the, you know, the older crowd. They'd sip in their coffee, finishing off their you know, ham and egg biscuit or bacon and egg biscuit or whatever. And uh, they'd sit around and talk. They'd talk about politics, you know, who's going to win the Senate and who's going to be the next governor and what's wrong with the president. They'd talk about sports. You know, they're in Missouri, so it's probably the Kansas City Chiefs or the, uh, you know, whoever. And they'd talk about the weather. How much rain did you get in your gauge? How much rain did I get in mine? You know, they'd talk about that. But they'd also talk about one another. And they'd talk about each other and complain and gossip and things like that. But you know, Dee's place, you know, there's a handful of people that would gather every day. Over a period of a week, you might have a few hundred that would gather. Then something happened. Someone found a website. By the way, I'm not even going to mention the name of it because it still exists and I don't want anybody using it. Because, you know, social media is like the cesspool of the internet. It's just absolutely horrible. Um... It wasn't Facebook or Twitter. It was something that was kind of a local thing that's now branched out nationally. And one of the things that's bad about that website is it allows anonymity. You can go in there and never, ever tell anybody who you are. 
And it's in, filled with incredibly negative things. It's all negative. Everything is. They have graphic posts about what people are doing and shouldn't be doing. And uh, one, the reporter began to interview people because it turns out that this little town in Missouri was totally torn apart by all of the gossip and lying on this website. And so she went in, the reporter went in and interviewed people, and a man named Shane James, who was the cook, he came out because he heard them talking about the website, and he said, this website has destroyed my family. He said, my wife Jennifer, she told us that we have to move out of here because of how horrible it's become. Someone posted a lie that she was a methed out, doped up addict, and that she was sleeping around on me, and none of that is even true, none of it. She's never used drugs in her life. And she absolutely hasn't been cheating on me. But that's what someone said. Now everybody believes it. When they see her in town, they think that's who she is. We're leaving this town because of this stupid website. <laughs> How horrible that is. But sadly, we bring that into the church. Maybe it's not quite as graphically bad as that. But you know what happens? where we complain about one another. We tear each other down. When what we need is people who are gathering together and lifting each other up, building each other up, strengthening each other, forgiving each other, apologizing to one another, and coming together as a, a family, a tight-knit community of people who love Jesus and therefore love one another. This is just one example James gives. We could talk about a lot of different kinds of sins, but I think he had had enough of gossip among his audience, and that's what he dealt with. The truth is we should all patiently endure. And the thing is, he, he talks about in the next part of this, real quickly, about two examples. He says we should be patiently enduring like the Old Testament faithful servants. He talks about in verse 10, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He first brings up the prophets. You know, the prophets probably had an awful lot of people complaining about them because they were teaching that they were, the people were sinning. It was God who had given them that message. They weren't gossiping. They were sharing the message from the Lord. And they probably faced a lot of complaints. We see some of that as we studied, you know, Ezekiel and Daniel. They faced a lot of that. Jeremiah was one. Felt like he was totally alone out in the wilderness. And then ended up complaining because he blamed God. And God said, just be quiet and go back and do what I've told you to do. We see Hosea. I'm sure he faced an awful lot of gossip when he married a prostitute, but that's what God commanded him to do, to teach the people. Hey, you marry this prostitute and love her because your life, your marriage will be an example of how the people have been unfaithful to me, their God. And we see that a lot in the prophets. And then he uses another example. He goes to Job, and if you've been in our Sunday school classes, we've studied Job here recently. And Job, you know, he was a man who was faithful, and the Lord bragged on him to Satan. And Satan said, well, of course he's faithful. You don't let anything bad happen to the guy. And so God said, I want to prove to you that's not true. And he allowed Satan to tempt him by hurting him. And Job stayed faithful except for one thing. He started complaining to God. And so God came to Job and said, hey, can you do what I do? 
Can you create the world? Can you make all of these things? In a very poetic way, he gave example after example. And finally, you know what Job did? He said, I'm sorry, Lord. And he repented and God blessed him. And so that last line that we see in verse 11, he said, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You and I have to know that we can follow those examples. Serve the Lord. Endure patiently. As you serve the Lord, know there's going to be complaints about you. But don't you ever stoop to those complaints. But if you do, God is merciful and compassionate and can forgive you. Verse 12 of James chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He received the crown of life. You and I might not deserve it, but if you stay faithful, but in your sin repent and return to faithfulness, God will bless it both here and now and in eternity when he gives you the crown of life. Speaking of athletics, I want to tell you the story of Bill Broadhurst from o Omaha, Nebraska. He decided that uh, he wanted to run in the Pepsi 10K marathon. He said he wanted to because uh, he had heard that his running hero was going to run in the race as well. This was a man named Bill Rogers, apparently a, a famous runner at the time. And so Rogers was a good runner, and he was one of the favorites to win the race. So he entered as well. And he won the gold medal in that race, in that 10K race in Omaha. He had a time of 29 minutes and 37 seconds. Again, just like swimming 10K, I couldn't run 10K either. Uh, but that's pretty amazing to do it in 29 minutes. I'd be amazed if you could do it in two hours and 29 minutes. He said most of the runners that ran it weren't that fast. They'd go in about... Uh, 30 to 70 minutes, depending on their level of skill and expertise. And so most of the runners would definitely be done within an hour and a half, two hours at the latest. Bill Broadhurst, this man who decided to enter because of his hero, um, didn't even come close to any of those. In fact, he was still running two hours in. And he said, at that point, I wanted to quit. He said, my left side was just burning in pain. I, I didn't think I could complete it. And so things were going numb. They started the race earlier in the day, but the sun was now going down. He was literally running for hours and still hadn't come close to finishing. The race organizers were packing up all the decorations and they were, the police were taking up all the barriers and letting the traffic flow again. So he's now literally running through the course as cars are going by. And kind of dangerous situation. But he finally got to the ending spot. And at the ending spot, he saw a handful of his close family and friends and his hero, Bill Rogers. They left an official timekeeper because he paid his money. He entered the race and it was now hours later, but he's holding the timepiece to give him his time. Finally, Bill Broadhurst crosses the finish line. His family gathered and hugged him and celebrated. A few friends, you know, tried to high-five him. He could barely get his hands up. The official timekeeper stopped the watch and told him what his time was. It was really long. But his hero still had that gold medal he had received because he won the race. He took it off, 
he handed it to him, put it around his neck. He said, I heard why you entered this race. This is for you. <laughs> Broadhurst said that he was told, you're the winner. You take the gold. He didn't win. He came in dead last, hours after everyone else. He was the worst runner in the race. He didn't deserve this. He didn't even deserve anybody to congratulate him, he thought. He felt like this was an absolute terrible event, but you know, he just got in and did the best he could. What the, will, what the winner, Bill Rogers, knew about that last place finisher, Bill Broadhurst, was that Broadhurst was running in spite of suffering a brain aneurysm that left him partially disabled on his left side. He could barely walk for years, let alone run a 10K race. And when he saw his hero give him the medal that he didn't deserve, that was the best day he said of his life. I want you to know something. None of us deserves the crown of life that God has planned for us. None of us. We all deserve, as last place finishers, disgrace, punishment. But if you'll patiently endure, know that the reason you should patiently endure is because he has a crown of life to give you, to reward you in the end. And that should inspire all of us to run the race for the prize the prize of God's pleasure. Are you ready to run that race? You've been listening to Sermons at High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us. If you heard something that inspired you, challenged you, or encouraged you, please let me know. You can reach me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook at High Peak Church. Thanks for listening.